may be seated. Good evening to each and every one of you. This is normally a time in a sermon where I tell you to open your Bibles to a certain point, and you could probably just flip them open somewhere in the New Testament. As you can see in the bulletin and the handout that you hopefully have, there are a lot of things that we're going to be uh, speaking on tonight, so there's not one particular passage, so I hope that you are ready to practice your Bible drills, because we're going to go through those. I listed those out for you, not so that you could turn there, but so that if you missed a reference or something like that and you wanted to know where it was, you would, you would have it. Um, it has been a, a busy week. Uh, it has been for me. I'm sure it has been for many of you. There's a lot, not only with normal life in the spring that's packed into this week, but with both Good Friday and Easter and other things going on in our church, I, I think that it's a very, very busy week for people. And it's probably good that it is. It reminds us of how busy of a week it was for Jesus. On Sunday, he tells his disciples to go get a donkey that he might ride triumphantly, proclaiming himself to be king as he goes into Jerusalem. On Monday, he drives out the money changers from the temple and cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he mysteriously, if not accurately and totally, speaks of what is to come. On Wednesday, he rests while others plot against him, because on Thursday, he readies himself for the supper to eat that meal with his disciples to wash their feet, and on Friday he lays down his life. On Saturday, he rests with the dead in Hades, so that on Sunday he might break the chain of death and Hades by rising again from the grave. And by even saying and going through that week, we are reminded of how closely Friday and Sunday are. This is called Good Friday, which makes no sense unless Resurrection Sunday was indeed Resurrection Sunday. But Resurrection Sunday is meaningless without Friday. There is no resurrection without death. And it's interesting to me that although those two things are just so tightly interwound with one another, the questions that we tend to ask of each of those days are actually inverted. When it comes to Sunday, the vast majority of people in the world, and some within the church, are really concerned not so much with what the resurrection means, not with what it implies, not with what it, it changes in the world, but whether it happened or not. The bare fact of the resurrection. Did Jesus Christ actually rise up from the grave? When we come to Friday, though, those questions and the implications of them are kind of inverted. The major problem is not whether or not the crucifixion happened. Now, outside of Muslims and outside of some really crazy historians, almost no one actually denies that a man from Galilee was into, came into Jerusalem and was charged with sedition against Rome or blasphemy against the Jewish God and was crucified, and whose followers said later on that he had risen from the grave. Almost every historian would agree that something along those lines had happened. People generally believe that Jesus died. The questions for us surround what that death did. What actually happened on the cross? What is the meaning of the cross? What is the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? What did he do? What did God wish for that death to accomplish? One of the reasons to ask this question is not just because today is Good Friday, but because this is a point of worship. We worship Jesus Christ who died on the cross. To understand then what he died for, to understand the purpose of that, is really the point of worship. We are here, after all, 
to worship and praise Jesus Christ for his death. And in doing so, we ought to see the glory of what he's done. And so the best way, I think, to understand this is to see that his death on the cross accomplished not just one thing. It's not monolithic. But rather, it's sort of a kaleidoscope of glory and beautiful things. He, he has done much on the cross. It, just one idea, one theory, sometimes we talk about this in terms of the atonement, can't quite cover and so tonight we're just going to briefly go through five theories of the atonement, or just five reasons why Jesus died for us. And I want you to understand that by narrowing it down to five, I'm not saying that these are the only five theories that are out there. I'm not going to give you the ones that I don't agree with, but I am going to talk about the ones that I think are important and why they individually help us to understand what the cross of Jesus Christ has done. So first, I want to talk to you about how the Christ accomplishes on the cross our suffering. Jesus suffers for us. This is sometimes called the penal substitution view of the cross, the penal substitution view of atonement. Of all the things that we are probably accustomed to hearing, whether you are in this church or in almost any sort of strongly evangelical church, is the idea that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. It is the central theory of atonement for the vast majority of us and for a very good reason. The central and best picture of what Jesus is actually doing is acting as the lamb of sacrifice. This is exactly what John says, John the Baptist, when he sees him coming toward him in John 1.29. He says, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says that because he is rooted firmly in what the Old Testament says about what Jesus was meant to do. We even read already Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Not only is Jesus being compared to a lamb there and a lamb being led to the slaughter, but repeatedly what Isaiah do, is doing is putting before us the fact that he is dying for us. He is dying because of us. He is dying on our behalf. He's pierced for us. He is crushed for us. He gets chastisement. We get healing. He gets death. We get life. But Isaiah himself is not pulling this out of nowhere this is not just the central picture in Isaiah and in the New Testament. It is the central picture in all of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has its, for its foundation the five books of the Torah, which stand central to anything that happens in the Old Testament, whether you're talking about the prophets in Isaiah or Nehemiah and Ruth or, or Esther, Joshua, Judges, no matter where you go, to understand rightly what happens in the rest of the Old Testament is to understand what happens in those first five books. And the center of those first five books is Leviticus the center of Leviticus is Leviticus 16. It is the pinnacle of what happens in the Torah. It is the pinnacle of what happens in the Old Testament. It is the story and the instruction from the Lord about how the sin of the people was to be removed. Now that chief high priest was going to lay his hands on a sheep, transferring not just his sin, not just his dirtiness, his wrongness, his evil to it, 
but of the entirety of the nation. And that that slain lamb was to be slain for them. It was to take its death. This is precisely what Christ has done. This is what the New Testament upholds as well. The book of Galatians, in chapter 3, Paul writes that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ dies in our stead. The law condemns us. We know that to be a part of the people of God is to be a part of the people of Abraham. But for so long, to be a part of the people of Abraham meant to be placed under the law. What Paul and every Christian knew was that to be under the law was to be under a curse because you can't live by the law. We were unable and incapable of doing so. But Jesus has come to redeem us from the curse of the law. He lays down his life and becomes the curse that we were. Takes on the curse that we deserved. Much the same is said in Romans 3. Famously, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to, to acquiesce the Lord in his anger and his wrath, to bring about justice is what it means, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The idea of penal in penal substitution means penalty. It's referring to a legal standing. It's this picture of us in a courtroom where God is standing as judge over us and, and showing us our sins and showing us that we are guilty and Jesus Christ having taken the penalty. There is now no more punishment. We are acquitted. We are not guilty, not held to be guilty. We are, as Paul would put here, justified. This emphasis is not just Paul's, though. As much as people want to place that sort of idea on Paul, it's rife in the writings of Peter. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He suffers for the unrighteous in their stead, and he suffers because of their sins. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah, by his wounds, you have been healed. Christ dies for your sins. He dies to take the penalty for your wrongdoing. This is one of the meanings of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The great benefit of this understanding is clearly that it tells us how Jesus actually deals with our sin, how he clears the penalty from our sin. It's not mystical. It's not magical. God doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, I'm just not going to hold you accountable for it. But rather, Jesus takes that penalty upon himself. Therefore, we have no longer any penalty to pay. Not for sins that we have done, not for sins that we are even currently doing, not for sins in the future. All who believe and trust in Jesus Christ have those penalties forever removed from them, and they are fully justified. However, while this particular understanding of the atonement has rich soil in the Bible, we must be careful lest we are left with only a picture of a courtroom and themes in our minds that do not kind of round off the meaning of the cross. If we only consider the problem of sin legally as it refers to the law of God, we can mistakenly only think of God as a judge in the matter, 
judges are meant to be removed from the very offense that they are presiding over. This isn't just an American way that judges are to handle themselves and recuse themselves from cases that they're personally involved in. This is exactly what judges in the Old Testament were supposed to do. They were supposed to be impartial, neither siding with with family members, nor siding with the poor, nor siding with the rich, and not taking bribes. Are we really to think of God as aloof and above interest in our affairs, as some sort of impartial judge separated from the proceedings? Only focusing on this can also begin to have us question the equality of the punishment. Why, if it's just about breaking laws, does God have eternal punishment in mind? What's worse, we can begin to draw distinctions in God that are not supposed to be there. In talking as though God is judging us and Jesus Christ is the one pardoning us, we begin to see God the Father as the one who is sitting behind the bench judging. We get to see Jesus Christ as our advocate on our side. And we begin to think that God is the one, the Father is the one, who wants to make sure justice is done. God is the one who, if he doesn't want to curse us and he doesn't want to kill us and he doesn't want us to die eternally separated from him, he at least is impartial to it. But Jesus, forever our advocate, loves us and cares for us. We begin to draw a distinction between the love that the Son has for us and the justice of the Father. If not tempered, we are left with a truncated picture of what Jesus Christ has done. But this doesn't need to be the case, for Jesus doesn't just suffer for us, and that's a good thing. Second, Jesus glorifies God for us. This is sometimes known as the satisfaction view of the atonement. God is not just an impartial judge. We need to remember sin is a personal attack upon him. Anselm was the originator of this understanding of the way in which the atonement worked somewhere around the 12th century in England. And he was really reacting against the way in which he he thought the church had gone wrong with some of their sort of overzealous attempts at, at explaining parts of the atonement. And what he comes up with is distinct from penal substitution in that he doesn't really focus on sin as coming up short of the law's requirement, but rather he pictures sin as a defaming of God. Anselm sees the context of sin not so much as a legal standing where where God has said, you should do this, you didn't do this, and now you're in traffic court because you were going 35 and a 25, but he sees it as more or less dealing with a, a culture of honor and shame, that our sin dishonors God. And we are in debt to honor him. But as Anselm writes, every bit of our lives was to honor God. Every bit of our lives was to show him glory and to give him honor and make his name magnificent as he deserves. And so if we fail to do that, what can we give? Everything that we do from him from this point on out is already owed to God. There is no way that we can make satisfaction for him. This isn't coming from nowhere. It's not just Anselm's fancy. But honestly, it's part and parcel of a right understanding of sin. Repeatedly, throughout Scripture, we see sin as personal to God. It isn't just a matter of you failing some abstract law, but you are dishonoring him. As we already read, this is Paul's understanding as well. Notice what it says. In Romans 3.23, it does not say, all sin and fall short of God's legal requirements for you. It says, all sin and fall short of God's glory. You do not give God the glory he deserves. You de-glory him. 
dishonor him. It is not just some sort of impersonal legal matter. This is actually, I think, what all of the commandments are about, but specifically the third commandment. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall not run my name through the mud. He's not talking about you swearing. I have to say, you don't leave here thinking that I think it's okay that you swear, but that's not what the third commandment's about. Rather, what the third commandment is about is the fact that God was going to put his name on his people. As they walked around, as they lived their lives, they carried the name of God, just like the Egyptians carried the name of Ra and the image of Ra with them, and the Babylonians carried Molech with them. So the Israelites would walk around and they would know Yahweh is associated with these people. They were not to take it in vain or to make it worthless, but they did. They hoard with idols. They involved themselves in sexual immorality and greed and in violence and defamed the very nature of God. The peoples of the world looked at Israel. They saw how they acted and they said, that must be how their God is. God talks about this in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36, directly before, by the way, he's speaking of the new covenant and the very work that Jesus Christ was going to do. Famous passage in Ezekiel 36 coming, Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones after that, but this beforehand, Ezekiel writes this, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Jesus, by his great sacrifice, demonstrates the glory, the goodness, and the worth of God. Realize, Jesus in his own life, as a human being, responsible to God for the very glory that all of us are responsible to God for, was perfectly holy, righteous, and good, just, and loving. He did everything that was required of him. So he, he gives God the glory that God is due by living his life, but Jesus is able to do something more because he is taking on not his own debt before God, which he rightfully pays, but he is taking on a debt that is not owed. He takes on our debt. And in doing so, he shows that God is more glorious than even our lives. By saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What Jesus is saying is, even though you, you have no right to require my life out of me, I don't owe you a death, God. Yet for the sake of your will, because you are glorious and good, I will give my life up if you want it so that I might be a ransom for many. This is what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, for the glory of God, for his majesty to manifest his goodness, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He hated the shame. But the shame was worth it because of God and the worthiness of God. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As John tells us in John 12 on the cross, Jesus shows us the glory of God. This view of the atonement helps us to see the importance of shame and defilement that we bring upon the name of God. 
we know how horrible it is when people speak wrongly of us, when slander happens to us, when people speak badly about us, not even the bad that we deserve, but the bad that we don't deserve. We know how personal that is. We know how horrible that is. And we're but worms. God is great and glorious and good to all. He is majestic and beautiful above all things. He has never done anything wrong to anyone. And yet, continually, people drag his name through the mud. They continually defame him with their sin. They continually denounce his character by the way in which they live their lives. It is a personal matter to God. When we see this less as a legal standing and more as a defilement of the character of God, as the slander and blasphemy that it is, the repeated defamation of his good name cries out for justice. And that is the very justice that Jesus Christ gives. Yet even as Anselm is writing about this, he is responding to sort of the overindulgences that come from an already existing, although I think a very helpful theory, which is the third thing we'll talk about tonight. Jesus redeems us. Jesus redeems us. This is the ransom theory of the atonement. He sets us free from slavery and from the situation in which we find ourselves in. Before the time of Anselm, this was the dominant theory of the atonement. This is how the early church viewed it. The Bible is, of course, rich with the theory of ransom and redemption. Redemption is this pretty basic idea of buying somebody. Typically, it's used in, in New Testament times of, of a slave market where you're buying someone's freedom to allow them release from the slavery that they are in. It can also be used throughout the Bible to deliver people from situations that are wrong or terrible or difficult. When we think of redemption, our minds should, of course, take us directly to Egypt and the slavery that the people of God were in there to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. The picture in Exodus is bright and vivid. God pays for his people. God purchases his people. He ransoms them and he redeems them. In Exodus 6.6, 6, God foreshadows what is going to happen to Moses by saying this, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's going to send Moses to Pharaoh, and he's going to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going to say, I, I don't think so. You see, there are really lots in number. We kind of need their labor. I don't think I'm going to let you go. And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you an offer that you probably won't be able to refuse. I'm going to show you what they are worth. And I'm going to pay you for it, but I'm going to pay you for it with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. Judgment, wonders, miracles, and plagues are what I will give you. And I will buy my people back with those. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 7.8 says. When, when questioning why does the Lord love them, he, he says simply, the Lord loves you because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He buys them from Egypt. In Psalm 49, the theme of salvation in the Exodus from Egypt becomes personal for the psalmist. It's not a mere matter of history. It is what God will do for them. The psalmist writes, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Is the very 
idea that Jesus has on his lips when he talks in Mark 10 about not coming to serve or to be served, but rather to serve and be giving his life as a ransom for many. He purchases us. He buys us. He pays by the very blood of his life for us. First Peter, again, picks this theme up. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a spot or blemish. Notice the switch in families. You belong to your forefathers, and they they gave you nothing of value, but God bought you from them. He ransomed you, not not by paying with silver or gold, but by giving up his very son and the blood of his son to buy you back from them, to make you his. We're not simply bought to be his servants, but to be his friends, his children, his brothers and sisters, co-heirs of a great inheritance. We're welcomed into the very family, into the very trinity itself. John 10 one of the probably most precious promises in the New Testament. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why will they not snatch the sheep out of the hand of Jesus? Because Jesus is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life They are his. They belong to him because he has paid for them. The sweetness of this picture is found in the fact that Jesus does not just forgive us and wish us well. He does not just show us the glory of God and tell us to do the best with what we see. But by ransoming us and redeeming us, he makes us his. Not just servants, although we are at least that, but friends and siblings and co-heirs. He unites with us. He cares for us. He protects us. As Solomon says, I am my beloved, and he is mine. The cross is, in a very real sense, the dowry price that Jesus paid for the church. You are his. Again, it's not that you can't understand these things from the other theories, but this ransom theory puts this very strongly in front of people. This is why the church loved it, especially in difficult times, especially when they were minorities in the rest of the world. Jesus purchased them, and he made them his. He redeems us from the world. He separates separates us from it and makes us his. Fourth, Jesus wins for us. He wins for us. He is Christus victor. The idea behind this is simple. Jesus is our David. He is the one who goes out to win the victory that we can't win. Just as the Israelites stood on that hill and they saw Goliath and they said, no thanks, we're not winning that. And David walks out and wins. So Jesus knows that we face an enemy that we cannot possibly win. We face death and we face the devil and we are not strong enough, we are not wise enough, we are not holy enough to win over them. And so he does it for us. To do this, he takes everything that death and Satan can offer him, allowing death to overcome him. But at the same time, it cannot hold him. And he secures total and complete 
an absolute victory over death and over Satan and over all of his minions. Our enemies, who are mostly spiritual in form, might fight, they might fuss, they might yell, but ultimately Jesus Christ has disarmed them fully. They are beasts, but they are beasts without teeth. Their bark might be loud, but they have no bite for us anymore. Jesus is victorious. In Colossians 2, we read that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. He disarms them. They, they have no more armaments. They've got no more darts, no more arrows. They, they've got nothing to hold us accountable to. They've got no claim over us anymore. They cannot hurt you. Jesus has won. We read Revelation 5 already. Beautiful passage. John is told that there is a lion of Judah who has won victory, and he looks and he sees a lamb slain. Now, typically, when we think of lion and lamb, when we think of Jesus as both, we typically consider that in terms of his advent. So he comes first as a lion, one to be slain with compassion and, and grace, and then he will return then as the lion of Judah, one coming as a mighty warrior, riding on a horse of war with a sword on his side. But the first time that's used is not for when Jesus comes back. Not when he returns from heaven to bring his saints justice, but when he conquers over death. He is lion and lamb at the same time. Dead, he is the lion who secures victory over death for us. Peter in the book of Acts, talking to the Jewish people who are curious as to what is going on when Pentecost happens and the Spirit falls on the apostles says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was too mighty, too strong, too good, too victorious, too conquering for death to have its way with him. Death could not hold him. The benefits that this has for us is not, not just in death, when we hear of Christus Victor, we oftentimes just view this as, well, we're okay once we die. It's, it's something that we might cherish a lot right on our deathbeds or when we see other people who are dead or when we think of people who have died and passed on before us. But truth be told, it has a great deal of importance for us in how we live our lives. The book of Hebrews writes this, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is, the fear of death doesn't, doesn't drive you to God. The author of Hebrews is making the claim that the fear of death drives you from him into slavery. Because you're worried about missing out. You're worried about this is the only chance I've got. You're, you're, you're wondering if, if I live my life the way God wants me to, giving up my life for my enemies, being kind and gracious to all people, not worrying about myself, and then I die and that's it. If I die and it's over, it's vain, it's worthless, and I've been an idiot and I'm stupid. This is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes basically lands on. This is why... So many people have the let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die attitude. But because we have assurance that Jesus has won the victory and he is just the first fruits and we will rise with him, 
we have great assurance that we can live our lives the way Christ has called us to live. We, with Paul and Hosea, can gladly say, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wins for us. Lastly, Jesus models life for us. He is our example. In Luke 9, Jesus gives an incredibly weird instruction to his people that I have no doubt they had no idea what they were supposed to do with it until later. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, before his crucifixion, that could not possibly have made any sense to them. Are we supposed to lay down our lives for the Romans? The Romans are supposed to come and kill us? Is that the kind of cross he means? Why would he mean that? What does he mean by take up his cross daily? But as soon as Jesus goes to the cross, immediately the implication becomes clear. Just as Jesus laid down his life, just as Jesus was willing to give up everything for those who would come after him, so you are to live exactly like that, denying your own selfish pleasures and own person even, and living your life for others. That is how you follow him. The cross becomes a central feature on the selflessness that Christians are to have. Some of the greatest passages in the New Testament are given over to it. Philippians 2 is perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest passage in all of Scripture. And it is all written, this great Christological hymn, which is so central in establishing Jesus not only as co-equal with God, but the work that he did on the earth is all written to say, serve other people. Paul writes there, look not just to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Having that mind, the mind of, of serving others among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not enough for God himself to humble himself by becoming a man, which is incredibly humiliating. So humiliating that this is the thing that Muslims look at and are like, this is, this is at no way, shape, or form can we even consider it. It is the stupidest thing. There's every other religion until Christianity said this, thought this was the most ridiculous thing ever. So not only did he do that, though, he would take on the brutality and the humiliation of the cross for you. Paul's point is, if that is the example that is set, how can you keep yourselves from doing good things for others? You, you are not God, and yet if God was willing to serve you like that, you ought to serve other people. In 1 Peter, Peter writes of suffering, a people who were going to start being persecuted and had been persecuted and were being oppressed, not to the point of shedding blood, but it was apparently getting turned up on them a little bit. And he said, listen, if you do bad and you suffer, then suck it up, buttercup, you deserve it. But if you, if you do well and you suffer for it, then suffer for it. It's okay. To explain that, he says this, for to this suffering you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The whole point of that is to say this. The cross is the greatest example you will have of how you are to live your life, of how you are to suffer, and suffer even unjustly. Just continue to entrust yourself to one who judges justly, thinking, knowing, and being assured that God will one day make it right. So fundamental is this sort of example that Paul will use it for the most everyday type of things. How a husband is to treat his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like, just every day, you wake up, get your wife some coffee, do the dishes, whatever it is, you are to love her the same way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a mundane thing. I know that we want to talk about how marriage is so great. and Listen, but it's pretty mundane. People get married all the time. It's a really normal thing. And Paul's like implying that the cross gets into the very mundane aspects of life. It tells you how to live. And all of these things are reasons why Paul says he has nothing to preach but the cross of Christ. When he shows up in Corinth, he's not going to preach rhetoric. He's not going to use fancy language. He says, I'm going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. What else could you possibly need now that he's been raised? Do you, do you want to know how you are supposed to handle life now? How you are to live? Christ is your example. The cross is your example. Do you want to have assurance that you can live that way? Do you want to know that your life won't be wasted? The cross makes Jesus Christ our victor. Do you want to have power to live that way? Christ has made us his. He redeems us. Do you want the motivation to live that way? To, to know that God is worth it, that he is glorious and wonderful. Christ has shown God's true glory. Do you want freedom from the paralysis of mistakes and the worry that your sin is going to keep you from God? Jesus Christ has died for your penalty. He has taken it upon himself. And friends, we preach and teach and sing and speak and live out the cross because it is all we need. There is salvation. There is full salvation, life-flourishing salvation nowhere else. For Jesus has died for us and our salvation and given us all that we need. Let us pray. Father, what love you have for us that you sent your son to die. What hatred have you of our sin that you would punish even your most beloved son for it? Jesus, what great love you have for us that to forgive our sin you would willingly and lovingly die for us. What hatred of sin you must have to suffer and die so that you might see it removed from us. What great glory and what beautiful love. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the power and the mystery that we have now spoken of. May it be praised forever and ever. For you are alone worthy of all glory, power, might, praise, and the worship of your people. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. If you would.